What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Warning. The Josh Hammer Show is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Paving a path forward for the new right. If you are a conservative, if you are a religious person, if you are a traditionalist, frankly, if you just love this country, fight back. And exposing the woke left. What is this identity politics drill? Why is the right playing into that? The only way out is through. This is the Josh Hammer Show. Major Supreme Court cases to end the term. Let's dive right in. Affirmative action, what a place to start, and what a ruling it was. So overdue. I mean, I think back to when I was coming up through the conservative legal movement, there were really few issues that resonated like the affirmative action issue as far as what this movement has set out for decades and decades to overturn the flawed precedents of. Probably no issue, honestly, other than abortion that I can think of that resonated like this for the conservative lawyers who have put into place this movement for decades. And we finally got the results. We got the results last Thursday. Students for Fair Admissions versus Harvard and Students for Fair Admissions versus University of North Carolina. So they ended up, as we discussed in a previous show, they ended up granting cert to agree to hear both of these cases, one out of a public school, one out of a private school, just in case the legal questions were at all different to make sure they fully covered their bases from both Title VI, the statute, and the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause. And boy, do we get a ruling. We got a ruling. All right. You know, many of us were cautiously optimistic about this case for numerous reasons. And I say cautious because if there's one thing that those of us on the right who follow the court for years and years have been have been um, acculturated to do, it is be perpetually let down. But this is one issue where I think many of us were cautiously optimistic, because if you remember back to the 2007 case called Parents Involved, a race conscious case out of Seattle, Washington, it was then young or younger Chief Justice John Roberts himself, who had perhaps his most famous line that he has ever put into the Supreme Court record, where he said, quote, the way to stop discrimination on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race. And the kind of general observation that many of us right of center court watchers had for a long time watching this case, these affirmative action cases, this past term get there was, wow, if we have the chief justice, then we definitely have Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett and the votes are definitely there. And I am pleased to tell you that that is exactly what happened. So we got a a major 6-3 ruling penned by the chief justice himself. It is by far, I think, Chief Justice John Roberts' most seminal, impactful, landmark career majority opinion. Of course, this is the man who, shall we say, has not exactly been a consistent vote for anyone. He famously rewrote the Obamacare statute from the bench in NFIB versus Sebelius, the 2012 case when he held that the individual mandate in Obamacare was actually not a mandate, it was a tax. Well, he has redeemed himself in many ways here with a tremendous holding that race-conscious admissions programs 
that the mere fact of taking race into account in higher education when you're dealing with admissions into selective institutions is not just illegal statutorily under Title VI of the Civil Rights Act, but is unconstitutional under the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. It's really a magisterial opinion in many ways. Roberts grasps the magnitude of what his opinion and Clarence Thomas's really incredible 55 to 60 page concurrence referred to as the second founding of the American Republic, which, of course, would be Abraham Lincoln's triumph in the Civil War for the Union and the three Reconstruction Amendments, the 13th through the 15th Amendments, the second founding of America away from the original sin of slavery into this still ever more perfect union, this colorblind society here. And Roberts is not mince words. He does not mince words in this opinion. He says repeatedly that to not take race into account, to have a colorblind constitution, if the Declaration of Independence means anything, if the 14th Amendment Equal Protection Clause means anything, it is that we are not a race-conscious society. And Roberts actually goes even further than that. He's really, really quite feisty actually he has this wonderful kind of back and forth where he shoots down so the dissenting opinions say oh you know this will be so easy to get around this if you just have an applicant talk about race in an essay a personal essay and and roberts basically he shoots that down and he says no you know a dissenting opinion is not actually the best legal advice for following a majority opinion that not taking race into account means not taking race into account so The upshot is that this court's four and a half long decade of legitimizing and constitutionalizing race conscious programs in higher education is no more. It's done. So done. Going back to Baki, a late 1970s case out of University of California, continuing through the twin University of Michigan cases in 2003, Grutter and Gratz, and continuing through last terms or last decades cases in Fisher out of the University of Texas. All of that precedent has met the ash heap of history. It is now overturned. Universities going forward will not will not be constitutionally able to discriminate in their admissions programs on the basis of race. Another thing that just cannot be emphasized enough here, you had the court's two black justices, Clarence Thomas, who is the longest serving menure, longest serving member of the court. He's the senior most member at this point. He's been on the court now for 32 years. He and the court's newest member, Katanji Brown Jackson, President Biden's only nominee thus far, They are the only two black justices, and this obviously is a case that implicates race. And they have just an incredible duel. Again, it's really worth reading this in full. Clarence Thomas has been sounding the alarm on on race-conscious university policies, race-consciousness when it comes to, to the bestowment of government contracts, just the general idea that race matters in anything more than an incredibly arbitrary sense. He has been sounding the alarm on this for, for decades and decades, going at least as far back as a mid-1990s case called Adirond versus Pandia. And he has this incredible concurring opinion really talking about Plessy versus Ferguson and how we actually truly are inherently equal. Plessy was nonsense. Brown was right to overturn Plessy. Abraham Lincoln, the second founding of America. And he just really gets into it versus Katanji Brown Jackson. And what you see here playing out 
and this is so this is the most interesting part of perhaps all this to me, what you see playing out between Clarence Thomas and Ketanji Brown Jackson, again, the two black justices on the U.S. Supreme Court in this affirmative action case, you see this grand battle royale between two visions of the role or lack thereof of race in America. Clarence Thomas, who's a man steeped in the founding era theory, in founding era American political philosophy, who has studied the Declaration, the Constitution for his whole life, he is of the opinion that America fundamentally is a colorblind country. This country has not perfectly lived up to its founding ideals. Clarence Thomas knows that than any man in America. He grew up dirt poor, dirt poor in the Jim Crow South. English was not even his first language. Greatest loving American, that man. And in this concurrence, he is adamant, adamant against racial determinism, against the idea that race determines who we are. Perhaps it had a role to play in shaping who we are, of course. But you have here this grand pian, this grand ode to colorblindness, to moral, ethical, and legal equality under the rule of law and before God Almighty himself. That is not overstating it. That is what Clarence Thomas is getting at in this concurrence. The loathsome alternative to colorblindness is race consciousness, which is explicitly the Katanji Brown Jackson dissent in this case. Arguably not even the worst of the two dissents, by the way. Sonia Sotomayor has an even worse dissent. Ironic because those are probably the two affirmative action justices on the Supreme Court. Jackson's dissent, by contrast, talks not about equality, but equity. Katanji Brown Jackson's dissent in this case is an ode to intersectionality, identity politics, Ibram X. Kendi-style anti-racism, critical race theory. It is a general fixation on race as a huge determining feature. This is fundamentally a battle of two visions of the American regime. One is colorblind, one is not. The dripping bitter irony is that the same activists who are decrying the court for its opinion in Students for Fair Admission, for its colorblind holding, in So taking their stance when it comes to race consciousness and indeed racial determinism, they sound no different than people like John C. Calhoun himself, the great antebellum racist who famously referred to slavery as a, quote, positive good. Abhorrent men like that, like Roger Taney, the man who wrote the infamous Dred Scott decision of 1857, holding that black men never were nor never could be citizens under our constitution and rule of law. That battle of two conceptions of the American regime were put forth in this case and the colorblind division won. Now, the question moving forward is, will university admissions officers find a way to get around this? And the lawyerly answer is we'll see. I mean, they definitely will try on the margins. Of course, you could find any number of kind of socioeconomic proxies, and they're obviously rough heuristics. They're not identical, but you could probably try to find some relatively rough proxies for race if you really want to get into this sordid business of trying to divvy up and ultimately craft or concoct 
your your perfect class space on de facto quotas. The point is now the lower courts are going to be very on guard for policing this, given this holding. And furthermore, furthermore, I I, I believe that university admissions officers should be personally liable in a court of law for monetary damages if they are successfully sued for taking race into account because the universities themselves cannot insure against illegal conduct. They can't do that. So that fact in and of itself should really dissuade a lot of tomfoolery. But yes, we're going to see how it plays out. There's, there's a lot that will be sorted out from here when it comes to the various lawsuits, litigation, the lower courts, and things like that. But you cannot overstate the magnitude of this holding. This has been one of the big issues at the United States Supreme Court for a very long time. Again, some of us were cautiously optimistic about it because going back to the parents involved case, Roberts himself, the chief justice, has actually been consistent on this issue. Some recent cases, including this redistricting case, Allen versus Milligan out of Alabama, started to give us pause because there, John Roberts and Brett Kavanaugh sided with the liberals in a somewhat analogous race-conscious case when it came to the Voting Rights Act and redistricting. But in many ways, they have really redeemed themselves here. They have redeemed themselves with, with a fantastic, fantastic holding that upholds the colorblind nature of the United States Constitution and, again, the American regime itself. Here is how Clarence Thomas concluded his 58-page concurring opinion. He wrote, quote, While I am painfully aware of the social and economic ravages which have befallen my race and all who suffer discrimination, I hold out enduring hope that this country will live up to its principles so clearly enunciated in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution of the United States, that all men are created equal, are equal citizens, and must be treated equally before the law. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Josh Hammer Show. Affirmative action was clearly the case of the term, but we had some other massive cases here. There was a huge, huge case out of Colorado called 303 Creative pitting free speech seemingly at odds against LGBT and the rainbow agenda. It's very much in this line of cases that some of us have 
kind of jokingly referred to as the bake the damn cake bigot style of cases. So those of you with a long enough memory will recall that these cases have been coming up and down the federal docket and indeed many state court dockets for a long time now. There was a case out of Washington state this past decade involving Baronel Stutzman from Arlene's Flowers, who was this religious florist who was very, very happy to make flowers, flowers arrangements for weddings, but she just simply would not do so for a same-sex wedding because it violated her conscience. This poor woman faced litigation for a decade. Then there was poor Jack Phillips out of Colorado. He was the owner, he is the owner of Masterpiece Cake Shop, kind of an artisanal cake shop store outside of Denver, Colorado. And that case culminated at the Supreme Court in a fairly mealy-mouthed, moderate 7-2 Anthony Kennedy special of an opinion back in June 2018 that didn't really do a whole lot. So when many of us saw that this case, 303 Creative, also out of Colorado, also actually involving the same statute that the Masterpiece Cake Shop case was involved, the Colorado Anti-Discrimination Act, CADA for short, when we saw this case being granted cert, many of us actually, again, were we were cautiously optimistic. After all, why would they why would they agree to hear such a similar case five years after the very kind of procedurally technical middle of the road, mealy mouthed masterpiece of cake shop opinion, unless they were actually willing to give us a broad holding here? So the fat pattern here is similar. So Lori Smith in this case is the litigant, she is not involved in preparing bouquets of flowers or in creating artisanal cakes. Rather, Lori Smith designs websites. Specifically, she designs wedding websites. And in this particular case, I mean, you guys who follow this style of litigation, you know how this goes by now. You're gonna, you, you had a same-sex couple come before Lori Smith and mandate that she create a, a website for their same-sex wedding. And she said, no, she said, look, I am I am very, very happy, of course, to prepare a website for anyone of any nationality, religion, whatever, a sexual orientation, gender identity, who the hell cares? But I am not going to put my artistic work to use. I am not going to use expressive conduct as the First Amendment case law refers to it. I'm not going to use my free speech, my conduct to do something that violates the dictates of my conscience. That was the basic fact pattern here. And the court held in a 6-3 opinion written by native Colorado Neil Gorsuch himself. Finally, 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 the court held in a strong constitutional First Amendment ruling in favor of free speech and against against the you-shall-bend-the-need hegemonic oppressive leftism of what the LGBT agenda has currently become. So we have this First Amendment. It's really, it's a nice opinion from Justice Gorsuch. It's a quick read. Really would encourage you guys to read it here. He talks about how the court has a very long line of cases, going back at least as far as this World War II-era case called West Virginia versus Barnett. This was the famous... Pledge of Allegiance case. You might be familiar with this one. This is back in in West Virginia. Again, in 1943, there was a Jehovah's Witness who refused to say the Pledge of Allegiance, even though that was what current law required. And the court, in one of its most famous writings, probably the 20th century, a, a very liberal writing, by the way, I might say, liberal properly construed, 
a, a true kind of civil libertarian civic civil liberal classical liberal holding in barnett the court famously held quote that if there is any fixed star in our constitutional constellation matters of orthodoxy shall not be prescribed by the state when it comes to xyz things paraphrasing there of course a little bit at the latter you know but this whole line of cases that that the government cannot compel you to speak in a certain way against your conscience against your conscience Again, this was a liberal issue. Once upon a time, the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union, the ADL, all of these groups that have moved over the years from liberal to left, as folks like Dennis Prager draw out that all-important distinction, they would have been unequivocally on the side of Lori Smith in this case if this case was held 25, 30 years ago. And perhaps the subjective nature of the litigants were a little different. And what I mean by that is if a gay couple was not involved. But no, the, the modern left, the only reason why this was not a 9-0 to zero case, because it really should have been a 9-0 to zero case under the court's, again, fairly unambiguous line of expressive conduct First Amendment cases. The only reason that it was not a 9-0 unanimous case is because the left and this tragically has worked its way all the way up to the federal courts and the U.S. Supreme Court and has affected even liberal jurisprudence. The left has come to imbibe this intersectionality hierarchy of victimhood, even if that comes at the expense of individual rights, even if those individual rights, as is the case here, are constitutionally secured rights, the free speech rights in the Bill of Rights, no less than that. The the most absurd part to me about the dissenting opinion in this case, and really unfortunate that Justice Elena Kagan, who I think is pretty clearly the best writer and the sharpest legal thinker of the liberal bloc of the court, really unfortunate that she decided to, to join the dissenting opinion in this case, which just drips with with disdain for Laurie Smith and really just drips with disdain for our free speech precedents of the court in general. The most ridiculous part about this case is that the parties stipulated, the, both parties in this case, both Laurie Smith and the state of Colorado stipulated that Laurie Smith's website entailed expressive conduct and speech. So the question was actually not whether whether her website is free speech, her creation of websites, I should say, but rather whether even granting that this is speech, whether the public accommodation nature of the Colorado Anti-Discrimination Act still overrides and would force her, force her to express herself in a certain way. Now, as the Gorsuch majority opinion points out, the, the logic of the dissent would take us down a very, very dangerous road. I mean, would the dissenting opinion, would the dissenters in the 303 creative case, let's have this hypothetical. Let's say you're, you're a religious Jew who owns a kosher bake shop. You bake cakes for religious Jewish weddings. Would the dissenting opinion want that kippah-clad religious Jewish man to bake a cake with Nazi insignia on it? 
I mean, really, that actually is the underlying logic of the dissenting opinion taken to its logical conclusion here. Now, the dissenting opinion, just like the left was shrieking on MSNBC, the New York Times crowd, oh my God, it's a right to discriminate. It's open season in America now for gay bashing. What a load of nonsense. Again, in each and every one of these style of cases, the Flores case out of Washington State, Jack Phillips, the cake shop owner outside Denver, Lori Smith also here in Colorado, invariably, the owner or the the business owner is always happy to provide his or her services to anyone and everyone. It is specifically using their artistic talents to violate their conscience that they object to. Also, if you are a same-sex couple in Colorado, which has become a fairly blue state quite quickly over the past 10, 15 years, you know, why the hell would you even want Jack Phillips or Lori Smith to create your cake or design your website? Wouldn't you just rather pay someone who will not fight this? who will happily do it. There's no shortage out there, guys. This is not the Jim Crow South. There's no shortage of options out there. At the end of the day, what is really going on in the 303 creative case is the following. Eric Erickson, a former guest on this show, had this great line 10 years ago now, in the lead up to the Windsor case, which was the first of the two major same-sex marriage cases at the U.S. Supreme Court, the latter, of course, being the Obergefell case in 2015, which constitutionalized it. But in the lead up to the case in Windsor in 2013, Eric said in a blog post, quote, you will be made to care. That line has always stuck with me because it is spot the hell on. This is not about agree to disagree. This is not about tolerance, marketplace of ideas, or any other liberal paradigms. Again, those liberal paradigms would have been celebrated by the ACLU of 30, 40 years ago. Rather, the woke mentality, not the liberal mentality, but the woke leftist mentality, is bend the knee, you bigot, and get the hell out of the public square. Thank God that Neil Gorsuch and the U.S. Supreme Court in the 303 creative case have finally, finally, via the First Amendment, said, no, that's not how it works. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Josh Hammer Show. Student loan forgiveness. That was the third and perhaps the most politically charged, just because it involves the Biden administration, of the 6-3 quote-unquote ideological split decisions that ended last week's Supreme Court term. It actually happens to be the least interesting case of the three for me. 
for various reasons, but I understand why the talking heads are fixating upon it. It obviously directly implicates the Biden administration's policies and things of that nature here. So long story short, in the lead up to the 2022 midterm elections, Joe Biden did something that he really knew he did not have the power to do. He invoked a dusty old statute, the HEROES Act of 2003. So under the HEROES Act, the Secretary of Education, quote, may waive or modify any statutory or regulatory provision applicable to the student financial assistance programs under Title IV of the Education Act as the secretary deems necessary. And here's the key part, quote, in connection with a war or other military operation or national emergency. So what the Biden administration did here is they claimed that COVID-19 and this was just last year, as this is 2022, you know, two, two and a half years after the pandemic started in March 2020. They claimed that this was still a, quote, national emergency under the HEROES Act, which would justify them in forgiving up to $20,000 in student loan forgiveness per borrower in a staggering sum totaling about $430 billion dollars. And this was immediately tried in the lower courts. The question all along was whether or not the parties challenging this would have standing, which is what lawyers refer to as the injury that would basically get you into a federal court. You have to demonstrate injury. You have to demonstrate the fact that the court stands fit to redeem that industry. So in two decisions last Friday, the court held that individual Plaintiffs, they unanimously held that individual plaintiffs did not have standing, but in a 6-3 decision, they held that at least the state of Missouri has standing because of this nonprofit government corporation that Missouri created called MOHELA, that's the acronym, that participates in the student loan market. So long story short, they found standing for at least Missouri, then they actually got to the legal question, and they concluded that, that this was a, an incorrect this was an incorrect statutory interpretation of the HEROES Act, that national emergency certainly has a dubious connection to COVID-19, and more to the point, that simply canceling, simply abolishing $430 billion in loans does not fit the word modify. Because the word modify necessarily means if you're going to modify something, maybe you're going to increase it by a little bit, maybe you're going to delay it by a little bit. Maybe you're going to do something like that. You're not just going to to abolish the whole thing. So this is always like, this is always a ridiculous, ridiculous legal stretch. It was an incredibly cynical legal ploy by Joe Biden to take us down this road in the first place. I had very little in the way of doubt how this case would come out on the actual statutory interpretation question. Again, the only question all along was whether or not they would find standing to actually reach the legal question. And Again, strikes me as as a slam dunk, but it nonetheless was a 6-3 opinion. Unfortunately, many of these partisan issues, so to speak, end up with these splits and the liberal justices kind of did the Biden administration's bidding in this particular case. I mean, the HEROES Act was always a, a ridiculous pretext for Joe Biden to try to do this thing unilaterally. The HEROES Act was passed in 2003. Again, recall, this is in the context of the Iraq war, the Afghanistan war, that is transparently why the statutory language that I just read earlier refers to a quote in connection with a war or other military operation. So it definitely was not intended to be used for this purposes. I think that would go really without saying, and you know, it does recall this, this 
axiom that the late great Justice Antonin Scalia said many, many years ago before he passed away, of course, where he said, quote, Congress does not hide elephants in mouse holes. And what he meant by that is that Congress is not implicitly or silently hidden in the shadows. Either legislate something of massive national economic, social or geopolitical importance or heaven forbid, delegate it to the executive branch for them to do so unilaterally absent very clear language. So the natural corollary of this elephant and mouse hole doctrine, if we want to call it a doctrine, is what the court has come in recent years to refer to as the major questions doctrine. We discussed this on this show about a year ago in the context of a case last term called West Virginia versus EPA, very similar style of case. And the the major questions doctrine basically says that when it comes to these matters of major social, economic, or geopolitical consequence, in order for the executive branch to act unilaterally, Congress has to have delegated that authority in extremely clear, unambiguous language. And for all the reasons that we just discussed, that simply was just not the case here. Now, it's worth emphasizing again that Joe Biden knew this. Joe Biden knew this. The the cynical old senile dude know this. How did he know this? Because as his then own House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said, Biden doesn't have this power. This is a direct, it's, by the way, Chief Justice John Roberts going out with a bang last term with the affirmative action case and also the, the majority opinion in Biden versus Nebraska in this case. Roberts actually quotes Nancy Pelosi directly, pretty rare for a, a Supreme Court justice to kind of quote a recent member of Congress, a senator in this nature. It, I thought it was absolutely delectable. So it's page 23 of the opinion. Roberts quotes Nancy Pelosi at a press conference from July 28th, 2021. Nancy Pelosi said, quote, people think that the president of the United States has the power for debt forgiveness. He does not. He can postpone he can delay, but he does not have that power. That has to be an act of Congress, close quote. So again, when you've lost Nancy Pelosi, like, like you've probably lost the plot here, dude. And again, I say that just to kind of shine a spotlight on how ridiculous it is that the three liberal justices on the court still dissented in this case. But again, these partisan times tend to bring out some of the worst partisan instincts of people. When it comes to the student loan policy, the court is not saying that Congress cannot do this. Congress has the power of the purse, after all. Congress can draft a new statute. Currently, the federal government has this horrific monopoly on the student loan market. Many of us view that as somewhat of the original sin for skyrocketing tuitions and the engorgement of diversity crats and the DEI apparatus in in university administrations, the fact that these tuition dollars are just going up and up and up and up every year. It's really kind of the original sin of so much of the ills and social maladies that currently afflict higher education. And so much of that has as its point of origin, the fact that, that the federal government has a monopoly on student loans. But because the federal government has a monopoly on student loans, Congress can legislate on this. All the court is saying is that the executive branch cannot do so unilaterally, absent very, very clear legislation on the subject. Very, very straightforward ruling here. The dissent says that the judiciary has overstepped its authority and has effectively taken this authority from the executive branch that has it basically backwards. The executive branch stole the authority from Congress The judiciary was just forced to referee the dispute. 
So, you know, again, a lot of people shrieking out about this case. You saw all kind of the intersectional disparate impact people saying, oh, you know, like maybe black or Hispanic people have disproportionate student loans. They will be disproportionately impacted. I saw the NAACP president or spokesman say something very similar about this. I mean, how insulting even accepting that is true, because I don't have the data in front of me, even accepting that is true, how insulting is that to black and Hispanic Americans who have paid their student loans and may have loans on other stuff? What about mortgage? What about your, your credit card loans, your auto loan? I, I mean, why are we prioritizing student loan above all? Again, these are fundamentally political questions, fundamentally economic questions that is here, there, and everywhere, the purview of Congress. That is all, all, all this case held. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. The Josh Hammer Show. So because of the way this term ended with these three cases in particular going out with a bang like that, you saw all the usual suspects decrying the court as not normal, not a normal court, as Joe Biden said. AOC was on CNN this past weekend saying it's an authoritarian court. And recall that this builds on three months now, roughly, of clearly collusive left-wing disinformation from the media above all and political actors to a lesser extent that have sought to delegitimize the Supreme Court. So ProPublica has put out numerous pieces utterly tarring and feathering Clarence Thomas and Sam Alito as somehow ethically conflicted. Hint, hint, they are not. Politico did the same thing about a real estate transaction involving Neil Gorsuch out in Colorado. Hint, hint, he did nothing wrong. Business Insider, I think it was, had some utterly stupid piece about how John Roberts' wife is a, a high-ranking legal recruiter and alleging that she shouldn't be making this kind of money. Uh, she is a lawyer in her own right, for God's sake. She can make money as a lawyer how she sees fit. So lots and lots of lots of attention from all of that to this utterly dumb Senate Judiciary Committee hearing on quote-unquote ethics reform two months ago. The left has been building up to the end of this term. They have been laying the groundwork for a while for this full-scale delegitimization effort, and we're starting to see yet again, yet again, that effort reach something of a fever pitch. It would not surprise me if calls for court packing come back. Recall that Joe Biden ran on a platform that he would 
institute a commission to look into court packing. That is what he did. The court packing commission came back fairly inconclusive. That shut up some of the idiot leftists. It did not shut up many others. I think calls for court packing are probably going to come back soon. We've started to see AOC and some others start talking about impeachment of select justices. So a few things are, are worth noting here. You know, we actually have data on which justices voted in the majority most often and which did not. So I'm looking here at the data, which was compiled by Jonathan Adler, a professor at Case Western Reserve University. I actually debated Professor Adler on an unrelated question on abortion about a year and a half ago. It was really a great debate. So he had this blog post just cranking the numbers. And the justices who are most frequently in the majority of this past term are the three moderate Republican nominees, the three moderate justices, Brett Kavanaugh, John Roberts, and Amy Coney Barrett. The next two are the two most left-wing members of the court, Katanji Brown-Jackson and Sonia Sotomayor. Do you know which of the two justices were least frequently in the majority this past term, who found themselves dissenting most often? Oh, that would be the two most reliable conservatives on the U.S. Supreme Court, Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito. I mean, what a joke, this whole sustained, we're going to put up our arms and yell, you are not normal, delegitimized. What a bunch of crap. What a bunch of utter crap. You know, in some of the other big cases, this term that came out before this this final week, one of which we mentioned on a previous show, Allen versus Milligan, it was a high profile Voting Rights Act redistricting case out of Alabama that came out in the left's favor, directly, directly helped Democrats reacquire the House by drawing another black majority district in Alabama, actually. Where were these people then? Where were these leftists yelling abnormal court then? All that is going on here, all that is going on when it comes to the headlines, the performative press conferences, and what you've been seeing since Thursday of last week when it comes to the Supreme Court, all that this amounts to is very simple. They are reacting to the fact that unlike virtually any other national institution of political, legal, or economic importance, The U.S. Supreme Court is not unanimously, monolithically dominated by the left. That it is a vaguely, vaguely right of center court. That is it. That is what the left has been freaking out about. That is what has led them to condemn racial equality and affirmative action, to condemn free speech rights and 303 creative and to condemn the most basic of separation of powers ideals in these two loan kits. 
being a staple in American media for over 90 years, Newsweek now brings you an exceptional lineup of podcasts. The debate. They'll recognize how these policies aren't working. They'll feel the pain and they'll change their behavior. The Josh Hammer Show. Restore the principles and the political paradigms of the American founding. The Crystal Knight Show. Just because officers are black doesn't mean that the policing system still isn't inherently racist. Fast women. Chevy's actually doing really well and Honda's really not. Wow. (laughs) She's like the opposite of most people's perception of them. It is. The parting shot. Every year when the new nominations are announced, I get this excited, nostalgic feeling and it brings out that little kid in me who just loved movies. The Royal Report. Harry and Meghan's head of comms has announced they now move forward to their kind of future outside the royal family. Newsweek Podcasts. New episodes drop weekly. Download or listen now at newsweek.com or wherever you get your podcasts.